If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in them one final time to the book of Amos. Amos 9, Hope. Today is my favorite day in any prophetic book. It's not necessarily always saved until the very last chapter of the book, but it's often right at the end. Prophecy is filled with sorrow. It's filled with sorrow specifically because, well, I mean, in many ways that's the reason why prophecy exists, in that God's people are walking contrary to God's Word, and if God's Word were enough, then that's all you'd need is God's Word. But uh, the prophet is raised up in the day where uh, people are not listening to God's Word, and there needs to be a forth-telling, a proclamation of the things of God combined with signs and wonders in order to validate that the word that that is being given is given of the Lord. A people is walking contrary to God's revealed word, and the prophet calls said people back to God, points them to God, perhaps even leads them to God. So in, in that way, prophecy is almost always going to be hard. Always going to be a little bit difficult. And Amos has been no exception. Amos has been heavy. It's been filled with sorrow. The sorrow of consequence for sin. But there's another thing that as we look in the scriptures, prophecy is always filled with. Prophecy is always filled with sorrow and consequence. But prophecy is also always filled with hope. Opportunity. And that's what we find this evening. We will find a few more verses of sorrow, but they give way to restoration and hope. Because that's what God is doing with prophecy. He's desiring that God's people would listen, would respond, so that He can offer them restoration. And Amos is no different. So we read in verse 1. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, Smite the lintel of the door, that the posts may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them. And I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. The final vision in the book of Amos. And in this final vision, if we can use the terms that we've used throughout uh, chapters uh, 6 and chapter 8, the plumb line is dropped. And Israel is finally destroyed. This again would not happen for some 70 years after Amos' ministry. If we have our timelines correct, there's a little bit of wiggle room there. Something around 70 years after Amos' ministry, however, this would happen. It's not going to happen tomorrow in Amos' time. It's not going to happen under the current king in Amos' time. It will not even happen most likely in Amos' days. But it will happen nevertheless. Amos sees the Lord, the Bible says, standing upon the altar. Now, there's no direct statement as to which altar this is. Generally speaking, when we would think of an altar in prophecy, we would be thinking of the altar in Jerusalem, the altar uh, of the temple. However, in this case, it would likely not be that. If we think about the way the altar has been referenced within the book of Amos, Amos being a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, We might imagine instead that this is what Amos chapter 3 verse 14 called the altars of Bethel. The altars of that place where uh, Amos probably has been actually speaking for the majority of the time that he's been prophesying. 
And the Lord stands upon this altar and commands that the lintel of the door be smitten. In theory, the door of the temple. Uh, again, likely, I would think, the temple there at Bethel. It is possible that he's looking at Jerusalem. It just wouldn't necessarily be consistent with the judgment that we're seeing here. This judgment is not yet on Judah. Judah is not in, in the picture here. It is Israel that's in the picture. Now, the lintel of a door is the top beam of what we would call a lintel post doorway construction. You'd have posts on either side. In this case, the picture I give you is bricks, so maybe it's not the best example. Um, but there would be posts on the sides, and then that top beam there would be the lintel. It's essentially there to add integrity to the structure. And so to strike at that point in the structure would cause everything within the structure to shake, everything within the structure to be compromised. And so the Lord strikes at the lintel of the door. And in this we find a picture of God shaking to the foundation the establishment of Israel. And then he says, secondly, cut them in the head, all of them. In a very similar type of idea as Amos is seeing this vision. The Lord is standing on this altar. He strikes the lintel. And it causes the whole building to shake. He says, cut them in the head. The head being an integral part of the body, right? Uh, many parts of the body can stand uh, various wounds and blows while the body maintains its overall integrity. The head is not generally one of those places. That would be what we would call a killing blow, right? It is the place where if you cut the head, if you strike at the head, you are striking at the very heart well, not the heart literally, but you are striking the, the essence of a man's wellness, carrying this similar idea. And both are pictures meant to show that God's judgment is for keeps this time. No longer lingering on the fringes of the nation's wellness, no longer coming and going through famines or pestilence, no longer uh, an opportunity to repent or to recant. It is driving to the very heart of their society. So that God says he will slay the very last of them with the sword and those who flee will not escape. Take note of the severity of God's judgment then as it continues. Verses 2 through 4. Though they dig into hell, thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, Thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword, and it shall slay them. And I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. So God is describing here the, the inescapable nature of the judgment at that point. That when this judgment comes upon them, that the Lord is proclaiming, there will be nowhere to hide. Now, we have seen, and God has already stated uh, several times, that this judgment will not be Complete, And what we mean by that is, though everyone will be touched by it, not everyone will die by it. God has generally given, a, a, effectively in Amos, a one in ten principle, right? That if ten men, if a hundred men go out, ten will be left. That if one man, uh, ten men go out, one will be left. So we've seen kind of this one in ten principle by which God says the vast majority of the people will be destroyed, but there will be, and He will leave, and we've studied this, we looked at it in Ezekiel last week, He will leave a remnant. However, even that remnant will face consequences. That no matter where the people of Israel would try to run and hide, he says, down in hell, up in heaven, in the, in the very bottom of the sea, God will send his judgment upon them and he will strike them with that judgment. 
even in captivity, so severe is this judgment that even if they were to give themselves up and give themselves over to be captives of their enemies, the sword would yet chase them into their captivity. So that when God said in chapter 7 and 8 that he would pass by them no longer, he meant it in the most severe and literal of terms. And he will set his eye upon them for evil, he says, and not for good. Never a place any man wants to be before God. The Bible says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. The people in Amos' day, the nation of Israel, had had a heart of absolute imperfection toward God. And so those eyes of the Lord that seek that he may rest them upon men of righteousness for good, God says, my eyes are still seeking and they are looking, but this time they are going to rest upon you for evil. Now, we've talked about that word evil many times within our church. The idea of evil here is not the idea of wickedness. God is not saying that his eye is a wicked eye. The word evil is a general word within the scriptures to mean something bad, not good. Right? It is the contrast to good. So God is not saying here that he will do evil to them in the sense of wickedness to them. God does not do wickedness. Wickedness is defined by that which is not God. God is not a wicked God. However, God is certainly willing and does throughout the course of Scripture, especially to those who do not regard his word, bring evil upon those. Difficulties, bad circumstances, and judgments. And that's what we see here. The condemnation then continues in verses 5 and 6. And the Lord God of hosts is he that toucheth the land, and it shall melt, and all that dwell therein shall mourn, and it shall rise up holy like a flood, and shall be drowned, as by the flood of Egypt. It is he that buildeth his stories in the heavens, and hath founded his troop in the earth. He that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. We find here a dramatic description of God's judgment in images of fire and water. God promising first to melt the land and then promising to flood the land. Neither, of course, in this sense being literal, but rather the extremes of destruction, fire and water. And in this we get a picture of the totality of judgment. Nothing left untouched. Those things that might be left untouched by a flood will not be left untouched by a fire. Those things that might be left untouched by a fire will not be left untouched by a flood. Absolute judgment by fire and by flood. And that he can do it, there is no question. For he says, the Lord is my name. The one who has set his face against them is the same who made the heaven and the earth. The one who has set his face against them is the one who declared himself to be the great I am, the creator of all that is. He is the one who has set himself against them. And of course, as we have talked in this summary type setting, we think through all that we've talked through in Amos. And as we've talked through it, we have learned very well throughout our time in Amos that the last thing that any of us wants is to set ourselves on the wrong side of the Lord of heaven and earth. The last thing any of us wants is to place ourselves against the one whose name is the Lord. Verse 7, Are ye not as children of the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel, saith the Lord? Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtar, and the Syrians from Kir? We have an interesting statement here. God asks them, 
Are ye not as children of Ethiopians unto me? Now, the nationality Ethiopia here is a translation of a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is the Cushi or, or Cushite, the descendants of Cush. And in this, God is making a direct reference going all the way back to Genesis. Now, we have studied this portion in Genesis already. And these are the descendants of Canaan, the grandson of Ham, the son of Cush, who was cursed in the days of Noah for his wickedness. But Canaan was not simply cursed. He was cursed in contrast, wasn't he? There was a contrast given in the day that Canaan was cursed by Noah. And that contrast was specifically to the descendants of Shem, who were in that day specifically blessed. So we read in Genesis chapter 9, verses 25 to 27, and he said, this would be Noah speaking, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. So notice here the contrasting blessing and cursing that God gives here. God promises to bless Shem, and God promises to enlarge Japheth by allowing Japheth to live in the tents of Shem. But in both the case of God blessing Shem and enlarging Japheth, he says of Canaan, and Canaan shall be his servant. Now, geopolitically, this is exactly how things have played out. But more importantly, to our point today, there is a dramatic contrast given here between the line of Shem and the line of Canaan, whose father was Cush. So for God to liken them to be as children of Ethiopians or as children of the Cushites rather than children of Israel is a very consequential indictment that they are acting more like cursed men than blessed men. That they are acting more like those who have their portion in this life than those that have their portion in the life that is to come. For God to liken them to these Cushites, to these Ethiopians, would be to say, you are not living in any way, shape, or form up to the creed that I gave you on the mount. Up to the blessings that I have bestowed upon you. You have rejected, by living like a Cushite, God would say, you have rejected me. You have rejected my law. You have rejected everything that is the position that you were elevated unto through my covenant. And though the Lord had brought them up out of Egypt, though the Lord had delivered them from the Philistines, though the Lord had delivered them from the Syrians, yet they were acting like a cursed people rather than a blessed people. Brought up out of Egypt, preserved from the Philistines, preserved from the Syrians, only to reject their God. God continues then as he says in verses 8 through 10, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, 
yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. Now, God has already said that his eye is upon the nation for evil. He calls them here the sinful kingdom and one which he will utterly destroy from off the face of the earth. But then notice what he says in the last bits of verse 8. That though the kingdom will be destroyed, the house of Jacob will not utterly be destroyed. That though the house of Israel will be sifted among the nations, he says not the least bit of grain shall fall to the earth. In other words, God's judgment will be tremendous and God's judgment will be terrible, but it will also be controlled and intentional. He says that the sinful among his people will die by the sword, and yet he will not utterly remove the fullness of the remnant of Jacob. He will not utterly remove them, but he will sift them among the nations and they will be scattered for a time. He will make an end of the kingdom, but he will not make an end of the people. The rebellious, the wicked, they will be judged. But God will spare His people. And in this we find the first glimmers of hope in the midst of sorrow and judgment. And in this we find as well a hope which, if you're familiar with prophetic promises, is actually not at all surprising. In our Genesis series, we recently, not too long ago, thought through God's promises in Deuteronomy 30 that he would preserve and that he would regather the nation. And as we walk through prophet after prophet, we find that this promise applies. Not only in the land of Judah, but also the tribes which comprise the kingdom of Israel. Notice how God demonstrates this in Ezekiel's day. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel was an interesting prophet. One of the uniquenesses of Ezekiel's ministry is that he was a prophet who worked mightily through signs and wonders. We think of a prophet like Elijah and Elisha, and we recognize that these men did signs and wonders, um, but they were not necessarily always directly tied to some grand event. Elijah certainly had Mount Carmel, where he uh, did a great sign and wonder in the name of the Lord uh, as a direct sign to the nation of Israel of their rebellion. But we also see, particularly among Elisha, um, things which seemed inconsequential as it related to any prophetic utterance, uh, making an axe head float and um, uh, taking poison pottage and, and, and cleansing it and these sorts of things that we would say, well, I don't see him making the axe head float and then declaring some great message from the Lord. He just made the axe head float. He, he was helping a, helping a brother out a little bit, right? And so we, we see various Men, various prophets, do various things. Certainly Moses was a man who, from time to time within his ministry, did a great sign or a great wonder as a means by which to reflect something uh, that the Lord desired him to reflect, such as striking the rock and speaking to the rock. And these were intended to reflect a doctrinal message by which the prophet reflected a doctrinal truth that the people were supposed to respond to in their day. But nobody did more signs and wonders than Ezekiel. The guy was a signs and a wonders prophet. 
And not always in great ways. He had to lay on his side for days on end and then lay on his other side for days on end. He made a little diorama of Jerusalem and showed uh, that, that, that diorama to the people. And once the people had fully seen the diorama of Jerusalem, he would go and he'd kick it down and he'd just smash it to pieces to show that God was going to do the same thing to Jerusalem. Even going so far as God saying, Ezekiel, your wife is going to die as a sign to the people. And since you are going to represent me in this sign and wonder, when your wife dies, I forbid you to mourn for her. So that just as when, 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 when Judah dies, I will not mourn for Judah. Your wife is going to die and you may not mourn for her. This was Ezekiel's commission. I think of all the prophets in some ways, um, well, Ezekiel didn't have to deal with the, the depths of persecution, but as far as actually enacting the office of the prophet, Ezekiel had a pretty unique and somewhat difficult ministry. One of the signs that we see Ezekiel do that was a little bit more mild and quite fascinating is found in Ezekiel 37. Beginning in verse 15, the Bible says this. The word of the Lord came again unto me. This would be Ezekiel saying, Moreover, thou son of man, that was the name that God gave to Ezekiel throughout the book, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. And so Ezekiel was to take two sticks, and on one stick he was supposed to write for Judah, and on the other stick he was supposed to write for Joseph. Now Joseph was representative of both Ephraim and Manasseh, but generally speaking we would say that Joseph was the representative man and tribe for the northern kingdom of Israel, and Judah was the representative man and tribe for the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Ezekiel now has two sticks, and one of them says Judah, and one of them says Joseph. Verse 17, he says, And join them to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of the people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and I will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks whereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes to do them. Ezekiel is giving a prophetic word. And take note that by the time Ezekiel is giving his prophetic word, the nation of Israel, the nation that Amos is prophesying to in his day, that nation has been non-existent for something like 100 years. Ezekiel 
is ministering around 622 B.C. Several years after he was taken uh, out of Judah and brought over to Babylon by the river Kibar. However, not, Judah had not fully fallen yet. That would not happen for a few years. But he was taken out and he was put in this refugee camp. Assyria conquered Israel in 722 B.C., a full 100 years before Ezekiel found himself in Babylon proclaiming these things. So Israel's gone. If we read in 2 Kings about what happened to Israel, Israel was taken by the Assyrians and they were scattered throughout Babylon. They were scattered throughout Assyria. They were scattered throughout Syria. Assyria had taken over that whole region. And then Assyria had taken people from Babylon and from Syria and from the regions round about and they had put them in the land of Israel. And they did this and they intermarried them and they they scattered them in this way so that they could not unite together and um, have a, a, a... reignition of patriotic zeal and then so try to overthrow the nation of Assyria. However, we also learn in 2 Kings in that day that there were real problems for the people that were moved into the land of Israel. They were being attacked by lions and killed. And the people pled to Assyria and they said, help us. The, The wild beasts of the land are destroying us. We don't know how to appease the gods of this land. So the Assyrians said, well, let's pull back some of those Israelites and bring them back into the land so that they can teach the people in the land how to appease the gods of that land. Now, they did not teach them how to serve the Lord in purity. They taught them the the perversion of Jeroboam. But they taught them in the land, nevertheless, these traditions. But what God did is He used that great uh, attacking with animals in the land to bring some of Israel back. And they became a group of people that 2 Kings calls the Samaritans. And so the Samaritans were the people that lived in Samaria. They were partially Israelites and partially those of Babylon and Assyria and Syria. All of that to say that for 100 years now there has been this mixed blood and the people that lived in the land that would be anywhere connected to Israel were Samaritans. The nation of Israel did not exist anymore and yet in this time Ezekiel takes one stick, he writes Judah. Another stick, he writes Joseph. And the Bible says he put those two sticks together in his hand and they became one stick in his hand. And when the nation of Israel looked at Ezekiel do this miracle, whereby two sticks became one stick, and they said, what does it mean? God's message was this. Israel and Judah, Joseph and Judah, will both be scattered among the nations, but there's coming a day where I will regather them, just as Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, and they will become not two nations, but one nation once again, with one king over them, and that king will be David, and he will lead them as one Shepherd. And it is this hope that peeks its head out here in Amos chapter 9, verses 8 through 10. That though the nation of Israel will be no more, yet God will preserve the posterity of his people. And this is where we go next. We've heard the promise of judgment, we've heard the promise of death, we've heard the promise of destruction. 
And we all know why. We've, done, we've, we've studied that for weeks. But one of the blessed aspects of God's prophecies toward Israel is that because He has made unto them unalterable promises, God's utterances of judgment will always give way to mercy. Now, this is not a characteristic of all prophetic utterances. Against nations like Moab and Edom and Assyria and Babylon and Medo-Persia, those utterances of prophetic destruction are, uh, are that because they are the enemies of God's people, they will never rise again. Because they are the enemies of God's people, He will make their lands wastelands and no one will ever build on them again. But this is not so against Israel, is it? God's judgment is always levied against Israel in the shadow of God's promises toward them of restoration. And this is what we read for the remainder of Amos 9. Beginning in verse 11, the Bible says, In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the heathen, and of all the heathen, excuse me, which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed, and the mountain shall drop sweet wine, and the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and they shall build the waste cities, and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards, and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land and they shall no more be pulled up out of the land which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. So the promise here begins with in that day. In the day after God sifts the nation of Israel among the nations, but not one grain falls to the earth, God still is watching and those that are not destroyed for their wickedness and judgment that God has sent around the earth among the nations of the earth. God's uh, watching them. His eye is upon them. Not one will be lost. And in that day, God promises that He will raise up the tabernacle of David. Raise up His ruins. Now this could mean several things. First, it could mean that the kingdom of David, which was defined by the full unification of the tribes of Israel and the fullness of the realization of God's promises to make of them one great nation could mean that. So the kingdom of David being erected from the ruins could be this idea of the nation being brought into one singular nation again. Second, it could also speak of David himself. For we know that David will be a part of the resurrection in those days and the body of David, like the bodies of all those who are justified by faith, will see a resurrection so that the raising of the tabernacle of David might mean the body of David. That, that David will be raised in order that he can rule over his people. And God promises that in the day when the tabernacle of David is rebuilt, whatever that might mean, that they, the nation, will possess all that God has always promised to give them. So God says here, there's coming a day when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, when the treader of grapes shall overtake the sower of seed. So the sower of seed is the person that plants, and the treader of grapes would be the person that is turning the grapes into wine. The reaper is the person who is 
gathering the harvest. The plowman is the person who is breaking up the ground to plant again. And the idea here is that at the same time the reaper is gleaning, the fields are so fruitful and so prosperous that literally one man is pulling up the harvest and another man is planting the seeds for the next one because it's not going to be a problem. There's so much plenty. There's so much bounty. And the same thing, that at the same time that a person is treading grapes, another person is immediately sowing the seeds for the next round. A picture of plenty and of wellness and of peace in the land so that men are simply able to work and to glean and to enjoy the fruit of their labor. God promises then that He would plant them upon their land and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land. This has been the whole essence of Amos' prophecy, that God is going to pull them out of the land. This is the essence of the majority of the prophets, that God is going to pull them out of their land. And God says, but there's coming a day when I will plant you in the land and no man will pull you out. And notice that God does the same thing with His promise of blessing here that He did in the promise of judgment. When He promised judgment, He said, the Lord is my name. And then here at the end of verse 15, the Bible says, as God promises that, he would, that they would not be pulled up out of the land, He says, saith the Lord thy God. He appeals to His own character, His own name, as the surety of these things. And this is as much the point of Amos as with any other application of prophetic utterances. Amos is a book where we learn of God's justice. Amos is a book where we are compelled to think through our own heart of rebellion and seek instead unto humility and obedience. And we've been called throughout the book to do exactly that. To see if there's kernels of rebellion in our heart and to seek unto the Lord with humility. To seek unto the Lord with obedience that we might have His blessing and not His judgment. Amos is a book where we are confronted with the wickedness of those who would enrich themselves at the expense of the poor in the land. And we've seen several times this idea of the wealthy and the powerful in the land taking advantage of and oppressing the weak and the poor in the land and how much that, that frustrated and angered God so that we are exhorted within the scope of Amos's prophecy that we would not do the same thing, that we would not become so wealthy and so callous to the needs of others that we would seek to gain at the expense of those who are weak or who are oppressed. We see God's hatred for this evil and God contend and advocate for those who cannot advocate for themselves. So we've seen all of these things and for weeks we have been brought to that place of contemplation and of humility and in a sense of, of godly sorrow as we've sought to search our own hearts and make sure that we are right with God and not reflecting the kind of callousness and carnality and wickedness that Israel had in its day. But Amos, like every other prophetic utterance, is also a reflection of God's mercy. A reflection of God's mercy to Israel as we see the hope of God, that He will restore them. But even beyond just what God delivers to Israel, what else do we see? We see that God even calling out through men like Amos in their day is a reflection of just how much God loves His people. 
How much does God love you that he will send messengers to remind you of his promises, to call you out of rebellion in the day of rebellion, to call you back to light and life? Say, yes, but I don't like that, Pastor. I don't like it when someone comes up and has to tell me I'm doing wrong and I need to correct my ways. I don't like it when you get up and you preach messages that convict my heart. I know none of us likes it, but can we see how much it is the very love of God that stirs that in us? Hope. Not just that God loves us, but prophecy also gives us the hope that all the righteous need the hope that God will judge the wicked. Yes, we want to search our hearts to make sure we are not among those wicked. We want to be careful that we are not among those who are in the path of, uh, of the words of, the, of these books. But once we are there and we have humbled our hearts before the Lord, there is this great hope that there's coming a day when those who do oppress the, the, the poor, when those who do oppress the weak, when those who do oppress the needy, there's coming a day when those who through lies and through deceits and through selfishness and through vanity have elevated themselves at the expense of others, there's coming a day where they will face a reckoning. Wickedness and rebellion will be torn down and righteousness will be rebuilt. Hope. That the God who is above all things a just God will be just. Hope that when at once God's people seek unto Him, that He is ready and willing to seek unto them. Now, for we who are in Christ, as we've said, the applications to this truth are realized more broadly in the character of the God that we serve. For those who are in Christ, we understand that the actual physical promises of judgment and restoration that God gives to Israel are not for us. That they are rooted in the promises of God given in the law of Moses, a covenant un under which we are not. And that God's promises in these days are reflections of His faithfulness to the prophecies and promises that He made to them in Exodus through Deuteronomy. We know, according to Ephesians chapter 1, who we are in Christ. That we are accepted in the Beloved. We know from Colossians that we will stand before God holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. We know that there's not coming a day where God will judge and scatter the church. There cannot be coming a day when God will judge and scatter the church because the church has already been redeemed. Because the church is not a, a people who must align themselves with God's expectations because the church is under the blood of the one who aligned himself with God's expectations for us. And so we will not face the kind of judgment that God promises to Israel in their day. And yet we still do face the reality of a God who hates sin and who judges sin. The church will never go through a spiritual judgment like the one Israel endured. Jesus took that spiritual judgment for us. And so we know that these promises of scattering and the promises of regathering and the promises of redemption were promises for Israel. Even as we read the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, we rest in a confidence that the things that God will do in that day of judgment, according to Revelation, when compared to Daniel 9, are not for God's people 
in that day. But we will be saved from that wrath that is to come because we are already holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. We do not need to be called back to God as the Bible says the book of the Revelation and the events of Revelation are for because we have already come to God. We do not need to be judged with the wicked for we are not the wicked nor does God ever judge the righteous with the wicked. And so the purpose for us in that day does not exist. Thus we believe that in that day we will have been already taken out of the world. And yet we do find that this nevertheless does not mean that we cannot take these things that Amos has taught us and apply them. What we thank God for is that the promises of God to restore Israel unto hope, the promises that God will one day regather the people, bring them together, and make them one kingdom under one shepherd, well, we know who that shepherd is, do we not? Jesus said in John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He says, but he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catches them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring... And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my, of my Father. In Amos' day, he promised that there was coming a day when the tabernacle of David would be rebuilt, where the kingdom would become one kingdom again, and David would rule over them, and they would have one shepherd. And Jesus said in John chapter 10 that his sheep hear his voice and know him. Other sheep, he says, I have that are not of this flock, them also I must bring in, speaking of the Gentiles, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Here's the thing, Christian. There's coming a day where the hope that God has given to Israel will be realized, and they must go through trial by fire to get to that point. They will be regathered, and then they will be brought back to the land, and in that day we know from the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ that there will be a final attempt by, the, by, by that great dragon, the old serpent who is the devil, to destroy them, and Antichrist will seek to persecute them until the day that as they're fleeing from Antichrist, the, the, the Lord descends and His feet touch the Mount of Olives, and they will look upon Him and they are pierced and they will mourn for him and they will recognize that he is their Messiah and he, they will receive him and then they will be brought back into this one nation and they will have one shepherd. All of that is the hope that God has laid before the nation of Israel that in their day they will see these things. In that day they will see these things. You know what, Christian? We are already inheritors of that hope. We don't have to go through the judgment and the scattering, and the sorrow, 
and the sifting and the trials by fire. We don't have to go through them because Jesus went through them for us, but we are the sheep of that shepherd. And yes, there's coming a day where God will regather Israel and we believe that to be a literal promise. And we believe that God will continue to do His work in the nation of Israel according to the Scriptures. But when Jesus says, there shall be one fold and one shepherd, Israel is a part of that. Both the nation of Judah and the, and, and of the tribes of Joseph are a part of that. But we are a part of that fold as well. That one shepherd being Jesus Christ. And so we find that as prophecy always does, so too it has in this prophecy of Amos as well, that judgment has given way to hope. And that hope, though it rests for Israel, is a hope which, yes, we, we don't have that hope in this sense. We already have it. We don't need the hope. The hope in that is still coming. But we have already inherited the promise. It's ours already through Jesus Christ. Thank God for that. Now we as Christ's church are simply waiting for God to finish the job. And so we leave Amos as, thank God, we get to do with many prophetic utterances. We can leave it in joy. We've searched our hearts. We've inspected our motives. We've sought unto humility and obedience. We've contemplated God's judgment. We've desired that we would never be on the wrong side of these things before the Lord. We've done all of that. Now let's take a deep breath at the end of Amos and say this. All of these things, these things are there for our profit, that we may remember humility, that we may remember judgment. But when push comes to shove, the very hope that we find in Amos' day is ours as well. The day where God will bring all of the people who love Him, all of those who are His people, all of those who are of His fold under the one true good shepherd of the sheep. And what can this do for us on this evening as we close out the book of Amos? 1 John 4.19 says, We love Him because He first loved us. In Amos' day, God reached out to Amos on this account. I have loved you. Love me back. Israel wasn't listening. Let us not do the same. God has reached out to us through Jesus Christ and said, I have loved you. Love me back. And may that be the drive of the end of the book of Amos for us. God has loved us. We are already the sheep of His pasture. Let us love Him back. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.